Welcome to the Careers Aim podcast, where each episode we spend a few minutes focusing on something which is on students' minds right now. I'm your host, Ray, an employability and careers consultant with the University of Exeter. You can catch up on our last series and keep up with our regular releases by doing all of those subscribing, following type things on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Hello, Paul. Thanks very much for joining us today. Um, How are you doing? It's my pleasure. I'm doing fine. Uh, Although somewhat holed up in the middle of a COVID uh, uh, retreat at the moment. To start with, I'd just like to ask you, um, obviously you're a video games entrepreneur. Um, what does what does that involve and, and how did you become a video games entrepreneur? Well, I was lucky enough to be uh, in the video game industry kind of when it started, sort of uh, the early 80s. And back in those days, uh, just having any sophisticated interest in computers uh, was a very valuable commodity. But frankly, I was self-taught, as as were the vast majority of my peers. Uh, we taught ourselves kind of low-level computer programming languages, uh, which was called assembly language back in the day. And it was really a fascination with taking things to bits and and recreating the video games that were uh, were popular at the time. Fantastic. So, so that's how you started out, and then, um, so that, did that just sort of organically grow into 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 your own business, essentially, or a, a, a series of businesses? Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, essentially, uh, me and a friend from school who is also still in the video game business, uh, uh, my brother, his brother. Uh, we lashed together a video game when I should have been studying for my exams, if I'm, I'm to be perfectly honest. But uh, we managed to finish this game. And I remember I, uh, my father was a policeman, so very, very sort of paranoid about uh, his, his sons and friends uh, taking the train off to the big city. Uh, we went off to the big city with a gypsy's warning from my father that uh, that these these people, businessmen, would be out there to sort of you know, steal things from me. Uh, and in uh, reality, we came back with a contract to publish this video game. We weren't technically old enough to sign a contract. We weren't actually adults at the time. So, uh, uh, so you could really say that we again, it was, a, it was an element of being very lucky. Uh, that we met uh, sort of compassionate businessmen uh, that were prepared to accept us as being young teenage entrepreneurs. And frankly, that confidence has, has lived with me through my entire career. I have um, a great deal of uh, self-efficacy uh, and resilience just based on the fact that my teachers at school couldn't believe what we were doing and were forever bullying us to, uh, to you know, me and John to be working on uh, our exams. I forego, uh, or went to what the, the uh, past tense of it. I was supposed to be joining the Air Force and I ended up writing video games, much to my father and his grandfather, and my grandfather's uh, annoyance, really. So, uh, yeah, so broadly speaking, I think it was, it was that very early win Coupled with the fact that we were good, you know, it was um, sounds, sounds dreadfully arrogant, but uh, we were in a much smaller pool of um, of talent, if you like. So having any talent meant that we you know we shone, you know, we 
John and I were you know, one of the few who would probably say less than probably 50 or 60 people in the country that could make uh, video games like we did. And we kind of went on and you know, built more and more on that success. Um, yeah, never, never classically trained in management. I went on to, to form my own business, uh, well, with John as well, actually. Yeah. Uh, that failed. Uh, so we had a, had a fair degree of, uh, of experiencing failure as well. Again, early on in our careers, it never, ever occurred to us to be um, employed in Bursa Commerce uh, because, well, when we first started off, there weren't jobs in the video game industry. Crazy, you know, that seems now. So, yeah, that's a great overview as to how you, how you got started and how it sort of developed. So you said you set up your own company and that didn't actually work out. How, how far into the your career journey there were you when that, when that happened? I'd say, uh, you know, <laughs> it sounds like a funny thing, but uh, having failure as well earlier on in my career was a good thing. You know, it sort of te- teach, taught me to be uh, uh, to be resilient. And I'd understand that when you push boundaries, uh, you know, that you know, inevitably some things aren't, aren't going to work. So I would say our first company failure was possibly about six months in. Uh, yeah, we we had that. You have to imagine back in the early eighties, it was it was a time of um, you know the sort of Thatcher's Britain type thing, where uh, being entrepreneurial was was something to be encouraged. Uh, and um, yeah, so you know it, it, it was very natural. Oh, well, that didn't work. Well, we'll try something. Uh, try something. So following on from that, um, obviously you said you learned a lot from the failure. And I think that's something that we can all take away. We all have times where things go wrong and we can learn from that. Um, so what was the sort of next steps for you after that? Uh, well, my most successful business actually was my second one. Uh, it was called uh, Big Red Software. Uh, and I very quickly took on some deals from uh, what was called Virgin Games at the time. Uh, and um, uh, you know they trusted me a great deal, and in in yeah, it, it, even though I didn't have any managerial experience, they kind of gave me so much work that I had to start taking on uh, people to work with me. I say uh, the first video game I did for Virgin Games was called Double Dragon, which was a uh, an arcade conversion of a. It was kind of a big arcade hit at the time. And then I went on to do uh, games a little bit into the educational space with a company in Macclesfield who had just happened to share shared the same postcode. And I, I gave them a, a call one day that literally went, hey, we share the same postcode. You publish games. I make games. You know, maybe we should meet up. So again, it's, a, it's punctuated by this idea of actually having a go putting yourself out there. But the the uh, first games business, this big red software, um, we um, attracted the attention of a company that you'll be familiar with called Codemasters. Um, and they invited me down. They're, they're very similar setup to my own. So uh, uh, two brothers that ran the business, uh, they had a bigger head of their father who could sort of orchestrate bigger deals, if you like. Uh, um, we did a deal where we moved from our location in Manchester down to uh, Leamington Spa, which is where I live to this very day. 
uh, and uh, we kind of bumbled through. We, uh, you know, we were making what was known as budget games at the time, so um, uh, games for pocket money prices, uh, which meant that we could turn out a game probably every eight to twelve weeks. And that's you, know, you understand I had, uh, uh, I think it was about six people working for me at that point. So we were, again, this regularly sort of experimenting with new ideas and new technology. I mean, it, it, primitive though it sounds uh, to, uh, to modern game developers at the time, we did have that sort of production line experience that uh, we'd build on technology uh, that's, it was then iterated again through uh, you know, multiple generations of this of kind of similar sounding and looking games. So I, I, I sold that. Uh, well, so essentially what happened then is that I was running Codemasters. We, we went from a stage of, I think as I joined, about 40 people full time. Uh, and then uh, as I left, it was probably pushing about 120 uh, game developers. Inevitably, what happens with young men is that we all had arguments, so we all went our different ways in the same way, I suppose, as the, the, the Gallagher brothers did with Oasis, so a real champagne supernova. But I learned an enormous amount at that point. We, the, the industry started to get elements of its professionalism that you see to this day. So, uh, so I was at Codemasters, we were sued by Nintendo because we'd reverse engineered the, uh, the 8-bit Nintendo to something called Game Genie. Uh, so I had experience of working uh, with lawyers. I had experience of working in a factory because we were also producing our own games. We were the only company in the world that produced Nintendo and Mega Drive games um, independently. Uh, and that sort of period of an hour, again, kind of has a, a trackway that goes back to this fierce independence uh, that came from the fact that you know, we were experts, I suppose, in what we were doing. But I um, essentially, at that point, I met a company called uh, IDOS. Uh, they were a 12-man company at the time. They saw in my skills, if that was the right thing, my skills and my, you know, my colleagues that uh, were employed uh, by the business. Uh, a way of getting again a lot of games out. So they approached me with the idea of buying my business, uh, which is you know, essentially what happened. They bought the business, they floated on the uh, London Stock Exchange, having a crazy valuation, like the valuations of Airbnb are today. Uh, so it was the equivalent of the, there's the start of what's called the dot com boom. So again, you could argue that I was pretty uh, lucky. But the, the, the London float was followed by a float on the NASDAQ. Uh, um, yeah, again, you know, this, this very uh, unknowledgeable about business, if I have to be honest, you know, very quickly had to learn to be um, respectable to some extent. I think, I think some of that still, it still is part of the games industry is uh, kind of this rock and roll uh, anti-establishment. Uh, but uh, we had to sort of be booted and suited, as we, we called it, to uh, uh, to then progress in that, that stage of the industry. It's where it changed from being young men in 
back bedrooms, programming uh, you know, for themselves to being an industry that uh, where you were making games for other people, you know, that might not necessarily be ourselves, the you know, the people like ourselves. So it changed from you know organisations. So for instance, Hasbro, I remember becoming involved in the games business, and, um, and so developers changed from having to make you know, war games football games or you know games of uh, things that they were interested in to games like um, based on Barbie or um, you know, sort of toy franchises and things like that so again there's a, a degree of maturity that uh, I found myself in the right time because I started uh, my family at that point so you uh, and I had girls so my girls wouldn't play the games that I created so it meant then that, uh, you know, that you know, the business that I tended to be in, I uh, was now starting to make games that my children were playing. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Paul. I've got one more question before we finish. Um, and that's just, I mean, you've touched on all kinds of things um, in this chat, but uh, what I'd like to end on is um, if you could, t- you know, give a piece of um, advice to um, a current student, someone aspiring to get into the video game industry um, in the modern environment, what would that be? Uh, well, uh, bizarrely, the modern video game development is insanely similar to uh, way back in the 80s. So uh, I think um, most students should be aiming to be involved in casual or hyper-casual gaming. And uh, that approach to entertainment is, as I say, similar to, uh, to what we used to do in the 80s. Uh, but the idea is is that you are producing a piece of entertainment. So this is particularly relevant to computer programmers who can often get hung up on the uh, the technology. So the fact that that video game development is this combination of being an artisan as well as being you know, a mechanical engineering sort of uh, individual, and when you embrace that. Uh, growth mindset. It's this understanding that you know you will never get to the you know, the finished goal. You are forever perfecting things, uh, and you know, in the way that artists, you know, they sketch and they completely go over and redo the, the picture until they uh, get to perfection. Once you understand that, working in an environment where uh, you are you know, forever producing you know, the finished version it will facilitate for sure uh, working in uh, casual and hyper casual uh, yeah, I mean I can go on if you like but uh, it has most definitively changed since the uh, since the since the 90s uh, and uh, you know, the noughties when I was involved in video game it was always that there was some Spengali you know the Miyamoto that would have an idea of a game and, you know, and an engineering team would replicate that these gays uh, games design is democratic. You, you, know, you come up with an idea, you test it with the market, and if the market agrees to it, then you make iterative changes onwards and upwards. Uh, and so this this idea of, of experts uh, developing video games, I think, is, is an old-fashioned uh, concept. Uh, the, the nature of mobile gaming in particular is that you can produce iteration on a weekly basis if you need to. You know, possibly, uh, you know, the way that you 
are approaching game development is to produce a CD-ROM, which has to be perfect. You, know, you can't press a million copies of a game without bugs in and things. So the, the mindset of a modern video gamer is, I dare I say, sort of coming full circle back to, to the early 80s, this, this idea of, of testing, uh, you know, producing testing and, and analysing whether, you know, whether your players actually enjoy it, not you deciding what the player likes and presenting it to them and then walking on to the next project. So that's where I think it's, it's changed to being, to being different. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, so much insight, and I'm sure um, mm. the listeners will get a lot out of that. Um, well, thank you very much for talking to us today and, and for taking some time out of your day. Uh, my pleasure. This was the Career Zone podcast, brought to you by the University of Exeter Career Zone. You can find this series on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean. So do subscribe and follow to keep up with our latest releases. And we would love to hear from you. So if there's something on your mind, then share your thoughts or questions on Instagram at UOE Career Zone or at UOE Cornwall Career Zone or Twitter at UOE Careers. Include hashtag Career Zone podcast and we'll follow up in one of the next episodes. Finally, of course, you can find out more information about all the support we offer at exeter.ac.uk slash careers.